Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Film Brits Podcast. I'm your host Trilby, the Knights Who Say Knee of film criticism and I apologise if I'm sounding tired, if I'm sounding quiet or if I just generally ramble and lose my train of thought in this podcast. I have been away for a couple of weeks, I've been working and I was also in Canada for a week for my Uncle Brian's funeral which is why uh, there's been no podcast for the past two weeks and I'm currently recording this from a hotel room as I'm away for work. I'm away I won't say where or who with because there's creepy people out there who like to use their information against me so once the job's done I'll open up and let you folks know where I've been and what I've been doing but I kind of make it a personal policy to not say what I'm doing or where I am while I'm currently doing the job uh, because that's stuff that has happened in the past and I'm not a big fan of that happening because I have some rather obsessive fans out there but anyway without further ado let's just proceed with the podcast and let's open with the share the love segment and the share the love segment is when I try and throw out some positivity and uh, some uh, some attention onto people who I think deserve it because the internet and the world in general can be a pretty terrible, depressing place. And I'll admit, a few day- a few days ago, I was feeling incredibly down and like depressed a little bit after just reading the news and the whole Santa Fe shooting in, in Texas and. I know that sounds like being sad on other people's behalf, and it may sound a bit silly, but it was it was just uh, it was kind of also generally a really tough day because I'd also been logging, uh, I'd been doing transcripts for the day at work, I'd been listening to hospital interviews for a upcoming documentary, and just listening to these interviews from doctors and nurses and people in resuscitation departments in NHS hospitals in the UK and having to transcribe everything they say. Some pretty depressing stories. And then when I come home, I hear the news about Santa Fe and it was not a fun day at all. Uh, So I like to try and share some positivity in this segment. And today... While I was travelling to my place of work, I was going through uh, Manchester City Centre and there was uh, the Manchester Marathon, or there was uh, there was charity races. There was people in wheelchairs as they were doing, I forget the name of the exact sport, it's when they're in wheelchairs uh, with the protruding front wheel and the two back wheels and they're racing and there were people... Um, doing the people doing a marathon and I was also checking out my Instagram and Facebook feed and a lot of people I know a lot of friends were doing runs and races for life for charity all across the country and then I come to the place where I'm currently working at where I'm staying at the hotel and on my way to the hotel I see uh, even more races and triathlons and wheelchair races and, and marathons and I would like to share my love right now to all of those people whether or not they support um, family members or they support charities and also people who donate to their causes who donate to see them run five uh, five kilometers or ten kilometers or however whatever distance they're running or riding I would like to share my love to all of those people who are donating and working for an incredible causes in their own way whatever personally touches them or personally affects my uh, like their life I can only speak personally but for like my uncle Brian whose funeral I went to the other week uh, he he passed away he died of cancer and of course as we all know fuck cancer but and like it's it's just it just gets you kind of thinking about your own mortality in a way and how um, the type of people we try and support and the causes we try and fight for and this is getting awfully heavy for the first 
three or four minutes of what is meant to be a film or media related podcast but we'll get to some more fun stuff later but I just wanted to share my love to all of those people and if you know someone who has run a marathon or has done something of an equivalent recently or is going to do one in the near future then I encourage you just to share a couple of pounds or a couple of dollars just send it their way to help support that cause or at the bare minimum like share their their links where they are doing donation pages just do whatever you can to support those people because they are running for their own personal reasons or because they want to try and do something better in the world and i think that's outstanding uh, i can barely run up the stairs of my hotel room without getting out of breath it's something i'm actually wanting to try and fix this summer depending on how much free time i get but those people are absolute fucking heroes and my heart goes out to all of them so let's get to the fun segment of the podcast and that is the feature presentation and while i was on the plane to canada it was an eight hour trip there and a six and a half hour trip back the six and a half hour one was an overnight one so i'm presuming the skies were clearer which might have been why the trip was shorter but either way during the flight it was there were in-flight movies and I decided, okay, I'm going to watch some of these films that I have never seen before. And on on the flights, I watched six movies. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend about five minutes talking about each one I saw. I'm not going to go into any sort of spoilers. And if I do, I'll have like a 30, 40 second spoiler tag. I'll try and give you folks a heads up if possible. But I saw six movies on the plane. Five of them I'd never seen before. And one of them I had. And I'll explain my reasons for watching it when I get to it. But let's start off with the Steven Spielberg movie The Post which came out a couple of months ago in the UK and has made its way to certain airlines. So The Post is of course directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Liz Hanna and Josh Singer and stars Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks and the film follows the true story of the the Washington Post publishing the Pentagon Papers in the early 1970s and what happened is that during the like the 30 year involvement of the United States in the Vietnam War the US government were fully aware that the war was not going anywhere that it was a futile effort however they wanted to keep up morality they wanted to appear to be on the winning side they did not they wanted to avoid embarrassment basically so what they did was that they would tell the press and they would tell people that the war's going great we're making great progress we're advancing all the while soldiers were being killed in vietnam and the u.s government were complicit in in the knowledge that they were dying for a cause that they knew they could not win and that they should not be there and that the war is a lost cause so what happened is that one one individual who was in vietnam he was effectively a whistleblower and he went to the new york times and he tried to Uh, and and he got access to all of these confidential United States documents, and he went to the, the New York Times and also the Washington Post to try and get this information out there that the American government knew that the war was a futile effort, yet they were fighting in it anyway, and the movie more or less follows... The main character, in a way, is Meryl Streep, who plays Catherine Graham, who is the head of the Washington Post, and it is a family business, it's a family newspaper, it was inherited down to her from um, her father-in-law, and then when her husband died, she inherited the business, in a sense, and it's it's a relatively small up-and-coming newspaper, and this could be a, ma- a make-or-break opportunity, because 
because once they realize that they have these confidential United States documents, they could go to prison for treason if they're not able to adequately defend themselves from publishing what is confidential information that could put soldiers' lives at risk. So it's a, it's a really interesting political social thriller in a sense. It's, it's a, it works really well as a drama because you have Meryl Streep as this real personal investment and if she, she does not, it's not just about fighting for what she believes is right. She has a business to run. She has people's livelihoods in her hands. She's got the staff of the Washington Post who could, uh, who could possibly either go to prison or lose their jobs if this backfires. So she has to think about herself, her legacy, and also the company that she's putting at risk by publishing these papers. However, it's got to be said that Tom Hanks has the more showy, uh, more showy, more fun role as Ben Bradley, who is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Post. And I love Tom Hanks. The guy is an absolute treasure. He is a terrific actor, and he is having a lot of fun here. Ben Bradley is a great presence on screen. He's really fun to watch. He's a big, bombastic personality. I, I imagine you kind of have to be if you want to be the editor of a of a newspaper in the 1970s. There's some great dialogue. The film is obviously really topical, drawing comparisons with the current Trump administration to the Nixon administration in the 1970s, drawing very explicit parallels between the two and the whole freedom of the press and the corruption of the government. This is a very topical film and you can see why Steven Spielberg rushed this film into production so it could get out in time for the uh, just gone Oscar season and while he was simultaneously doing post-production on Ready Player One. And the post is, in a way, it it feels like a rushed film structurally, and I don't mean that in that the film feels really, really quick. It feels like Steven Spielberg got his hands on this really interesting script, which was written by, let me get the names, Liz Hanna and Josh Singer, and then thought, okay, what we'll do, we'll get this film straight into production right now. And if I was a producer, I would have said, Steven, do you want to, you know, look at the script first and maybe give it a quick once over and a slight redraft and maybe trim it a little bit? And he said, no, we've got to get this film done. And as a result, the film seems to be a little bit baggy. There's a bit of fat that probably should have been trimmed in the script, or maybe even in the editing department, in the editing suite. And the the post takes a while to get going. The film, strictly speaking, isn't that long. It's less than two hours long, but it feels quite a bit longer. And the film maybe feels like it could have picked up the pace a little bit more. The story is interesting, and the characters are engaging, and the topical themes really keep the audience invested. But it takes a while to get going. The second act is a little bit middling, and the film really picks up when the pa- when the papers themselves get published. But they don't really get published until roughly the 70 to 80 minute mark but that is absolutely the best scene in the movie and one of the reasons it's the best scene in the movie is because John Williams does a fantastic score I think in the soundtrack he's only got maybe seven or eight tracks in this in the actual score itself but the track uh, the press is rolling I think it's got it's it's track two either way it's the music that plays when they decide to finally publish the papers and it's done over a montage of the papers getting uh, put through the printing press and then they're sent out and they're shipped out and they're put on the back of vans and then they're um, they're thrown onto the street and onto newsstands the music's terrific and it doesn't feel it it feels like it's, it's got that John Williams touch but it doesn't feel like whimsy classical John Williams it feels like it's suited for this particular source material but the post it's a good film I really recommend it in my opinion it would not have been a best picture nominee it's kind of b-level Spielberg but it's still a really good film I think it's worth seeing 
it's worth seeing at least once and on repeat viewings it's probably one of those films that you will end up uh, hitting fast forward in a few key moments like in a few of the of the the less important moments and the less important segments for lack of a better term but it's an interesting topical story if you are interested at all in the current political uh, climate i uh, i do recommend watching the post and and in a way it's almost worth seeing just to see what Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks do with their performances because they're really a lot of fun to watch so i recommend the post even if that recommendation is not necessarily a glowing one it would i think it will do well in classrooms in in um, history class in history classes and colleges and stuff like that and it's a good way to uh, get across this story in a cinematic way I just think that the material maybe could have been tightened up a little bit in the edit or in another draft of the screenplay in my opinion dialogue's fine it's all in that structure though Next up we have a film that I missed when it came out in theatres and I was really wanting to watch it after the initial reviews came in. It was a film I was quite sceptical about but after seeing it, it was a lot of fun. I'm talking about Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle which is of course a sequel to the 1995 movie Jumanji starring Robin Williams which is a film I watched as a kid. It was a film that scared the <laughs> the living daylights out of me. The spiders, the quicksand, the animals, it, it really did freak me out as a kid when I first saw it. I think I saw it when I was maybe seven or eight years old and it's it's a scary film when you're that age. It's, it really freaked me out. I've not revisited it for a long time. I've seen a couple of clips and, and stuff and I know that the CGI does not quite hold up but at the time it was quite a technical marvel uh, and I, I, I kind of enjoyed it when I was a kid. I need to revisit it but this one this is a really fun film. So the plot, of course, follows uh, a bunch of high school students. You've got Spencer, you've got Bethany, you've got Anthony, and you've got Martha. And for one reason or another, they get in trouble. They're kind of breakfast clubbed in a way, and they have to clean up, clean out a school basement. And while they're there, they discover a video game console because the Jumanji game, the board game from the 1995 film, it, it washed up on the shores, it was a board game, and then whoever picked it up thought, oh, who plays board games anymore? And then he starts playing a video game, and then the the uh, the board game, in the uh, like overnight it changes into a video game console, and then is able to suck up another kid. But what happens, this film takes place several years after it has become a video game console, and these four teenagers decide, oh, you're, you're in detention, we'll just give it a play while we're not being supervised by a teacher, and they get sucked into the game. Uh, Spencer becomes Dwayne Johnson, D- Dwayne the Rock Johnson, Beth he becomes Jack Black, an overweight middle-aged man. Anthony becomes Kevin Hart, about three foot shorter. And Martha becomes this badass Karen Gillan Lara Croft-style commando lady. And the film gets an awful lot of mileage out of these four teenagers being uh, physically very um, mismatched uh, in, with their video game avatars. You've got this neat, you've got this nerdy kid who becomes basically the biggest man on the, on the planet. You've got this Instagram obsessed girl who would probably call herself an Instagram model. Uh, she becomes Jack Black. You've got this sports guy who who um, is, turns into Kevin Hart, who's a zoologist who is basically a um, a, a glorified backpack for the Rock. And it, one of his weaknesses is cake. And you've got this. Uh, this shy, uh, really cynical girl who um, uh, who transforms into Lara Croft, basically. And Karen Gillan does a really good job at playing that sort of badass woman. And and the uh, I remember there was the early criticisms about what Karen Gillan was wearing. And while the film doesn't exactly justify it incredibly well, it's the whole "Why would I be wearing this outfit when I'm in a jungle?" It, it is sort of what it, it's lampshading it, but it's still doing the thing. Uh, I think if the if they really wanted to kind of mock that, they'd. Um, th- th- uh, what what um, 
uh, Martha would do as the Avatar would maybe take someone's coat and wear it for the rest of the film so she wasn't um, dressed up like that but this is of course nitpicking it's because something that, that I remembered when watching the film but it wouldn't surprise me if the four main stars, The Rock, Jack Black, Kevin Hart, Carrie Gillen, they watched the teenagers act out their scenes and maybe they watched them act out the scenes in the jungle during the video game, like on a soundstage or something, and then tried to imitate it because they get the mannerisms really, really down pat. You've got Jack Black who kind of steals the show as a teenage girl and this, some of the funniest moments of the film come from Jack Black trying to, <laughs> like, just him learning to be a dude, like learning how to pee and trying to teach uh, Karen Gillan how to be like a smouldering uh, woman to seduce some guards and it, it's some really really funny segments and really funny stuff and Dwayne Johnson is really convincing as this teenager in this bodybuilder's body and the awkwardness that comes with that and this potential romance between him and Karen Gillan's character and how they just have no idea how to act around the opposite uh, gender it's, it's really well done really well played and the comedy really excels. And while the director, Jake Caston, he's directed some like okay comedies, like Bad Teacher was alright, although he directed Sex Tape, so let's let's not talk about Sex Tape. He does a good job with the cast here, and I think the cast are really carrying the film, because the action, in a way, kind of lets the side down. The action's not really all that interesting. It's the, the fight scenes and the chases don't really engage all that much, and that kind of makes sense. There's nothing in Jake Caston's filmography that even indicates uh, any sort of propensity for action sequences, but it's still uh, the, the location filming is pretty good and i uh, i appreciated some of the video game references how there's one um uh, ai character who helps them out on their journey and he essentially has predetermined phrases so he he repeats all the phrases to these characters because he's an ai who's only programmed to say certain things the film gets actually quite a bit of mileage out of that and it's really fun uh, but really, the, what sells Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle is the interplay with the four main characters. Although I will say that Kevin Hart kind of does let the side down because while all these other characters are really going, while the other actors are really going above and beyond to play against type, Kevin Hart does kind of just go. Uh, he he falls back on his own shtick. The whole shrieking short black man. Uh, it's it's the same thing we've seen over and over again in, in Kevin Hart films. And yeah, he gets a couple of funny funny jokes and funny lines, and he has a few funny moments because he's Kevin Hart. He's been doing this for a while, and he's a really funny guy. It just feels weird that you have all of these other actors who are really putting their all into playing these different characters, and Kevin Hart is just business as usual. I think he kind of lets the side down. But still, the video game reference are fun there's some legitimately funny gags and jokes the cgi is pretty good for the most part um and i felt i felt like the film actually had quite a bit of heart to it it's a story about um like learning to overcome your own weaknesses and being brave and while it's you know it's not shakespeare but it's still it's still good like children's family movie fare that i enjoyed and appreciated there's nothing quite as horrific and scary as the original Jumanji film from my recollection but it's still a fun time and it probably even improves on the original Jumanji film and I'd pay to see another I'd go to the theatres and watch a sequel as long as these cast of characters returned and they, their avatars were maybe expanded upon the concept a bit more but I'd still pay to see another Dwayne Johnson, Jack Black and Karen Gillan and maybe Kevin Hart collaboration. Now this film is a really really random one that I watched and that was Ferdinand, which is the animated movie from Blue Sky Studios, who of course did the Ice Age movies. 
And the story of Ferdinand is based off of the book, the story of Ferdinand, about the, the, the gentle bull, the bull who would rather sniff flowers and smell flowers in the countryside than participate in bullfights. And Ferdinand is a film that kind of takes that short story, that short book from the 1920s, 30s, from like nearly a century ago, and expand it into, into a feature-length film. And Ferdinand is a good film that could and should have been great. We, I, in the hands of Pixar, this story could have been really profound, and I, I liked all of the films that I saw in during my in-flight experience. Spoiler, spoiler alert! I, I liked all of them, but Ferdinand is the film that I was most disappointed by because it had an opportunity in its hands, and it just lost it. Because Ferdinand, the story is solid. The actual nuts and bolts of the plot are fine. You have this bull who is voiced by John Cena, who does a really good job. And he's this gentle bull. Like when he's a, he's a baby, when he's a calf, uh, he's bullied by all the other bulls who want to grow up and become really strong bullfighters and be chosen by the matador and go into a bullfight for, for glory and for fame. Uh, but Ferdinand would rather sniff flowers and appreciate nature, and he manages to escape one day. And he grows up on a farm, he he finds a family, and but he there's a misunderstanding, he's a big bull, he scares a lot of people, so he gets sent back to that place. He gets sent back to the bull, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like, like the training bull ranch. And he he finds all the people who were there at his childhood who have grown up to try and be like really tough bulls. But he's a, like, a naturally big, really strong bull, he just does not have this urge to fight. And this this matador comes along. He says, "I I'm the best bullfighter in the world. I have one final bullfight, and I want to choose the big, the biggest, and the best bull." And he determines that that is Ferdinand. And you have these really great plot digressions where one of the bulls who um, makes a poor showing demonstrating to the matador when he's trying to select which bull is which um, goes to the chop house. I think I think they call it the chop house, which is basically the butchers. If they don't go to the ring, they get made into meat. And if they go into the ring, they are killed by the matador because no one wins against the matador. And it's this idea of you either stand your ground and die, or you stand your ground and you also die. And Ferdinand has to make choices over the course of the film that, considering the source material and that this is an animated kids film, are really mature, really profound, and could have been incredible material. The issue here is that the film has to dumb itself down for lowest common denominator values. You have this these three horses that are like dancing horses, and they have like a dance-off against the bulls. You've got these three hedgehogs and porcupines who are into hip-hop, and they do singing and they do dancing. You've got Kate, McKillen, Kate McKinnon, who plays this goat, who actually gets some pretty dramatic moments, but she's mainly there for comic relief and slapstick. And you get this sense that the film had this great source material, but it didn't have it either didn't have faith in its audience, or there were producers who were saying, this material's not going to sell, you need to have slapstick, you need to have pop culture references, you need to have singing and dance numbers, and it just, it kind of collapses under its own inadequacy or it, at least its own sense of inadequacy because the story's enough the characters are, are rather um broadly drawn but there's still there's still potential there and the final scene when you actually if i were to just describe the plot to you 
getting rid of all of the fluff, all of the filler, all of the pop culture references and the dance-offs and the jokes and the action sequences and the chases involving vehicles and through the city and like all of that super- superlative stuff that really detracts from the whole package, you would think this was a Pixar-like type story where they found this really powerful moral about bullying or being yourself and standing up for for your ideals and finding another way. But when you actually watch Ferdinand, it drops the ball because it doesn't have faith in that story. And if Pixar had done this instead of Blue Sky Studios or, or a company like Illumination did not do this material, you could have a really powerful movie. And John Cena really embodies this bull. He's empathetic. He's a really... He's a really... Um, he, he gives pathos and humanity to this character. And you really grow to like Ferdinand over the course of the movie. And But what happens is that the film kind of cops out on some of its own ideals. It, it goes back on the, the chop house aspect of the film and it actually creates a couple of plot holes in doing so. There's extensive action and chase sequences. There's like hip, there's like modern musical montages. This could have been a terrific timeless animated film. As it just stands right now, it's merely a good one with sequences that made me quite frankly embarrassed to be watching it in public uh, on on an airplane. It could have been good, it should have been great, but yeah, Ferdinand is, I can't tell kids to like not see it, so there's nothing really reprehensible in there, but it really should have been better, and I'm really disappointed in a way. So uh, the next movie I'm going to be talking about is Molly's Game, uh, which is the directorial debut of screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, who of course did The Social Network, who... Uh, did Wings, who has, um, who did Steve Jobs and Moneyball and so many, uh, not not Wings, what am I talking about? The West Wing. I'm tired in a hotel. I apologise. And this is his directorial debut. It tells the story of Molly Bloom, who is who was. Um, it essentially tells her life story. She's played by Jessica Chastain, who after crashing out during the 2002 Winter Olympics, she was a uh, a skier. She decides to abandon going to law school, which was her original plan. She takes a gap year. She goes to L.A. and she becomes a waitress. And then she meets a real estate developer. She helps uh, manage his office. And then she's given a responsibility to run something called The Game, which is where some um, powerful individuals in L.A. and in Hollywood come together to play poker in this bar. And over the course of the film, she develops the game into a much more prestigious event. She rents out a hotel room. She gets more high-profile players. She gets a lot more money, and she starts... Uh, the, the whole operation is legal until she starts taking uh, She starts taking in some of the winnings, and then it becomes an illegal crap game. And the film follows her life story about how she is uh, arrested by the FBI because some of the people that she was... Uh, taking part in the game with were associated with the Russian Mafia and the Italian Mafia and they she has to prove her innocence and she hires a lawyer played by Idris Elba who is really great in the film the, Molly's game is good it feels like Aaron Sorkin as a director has yet to establish some sort of unique style I think he really liked the Wolf of Wall Street a lot and he's trying to implement that particularly with a lot of the narration and the just the way that Jessica Chastain's character develops over the course of the film. But as a writer, you cannot deny his ability to create great dialogue and relatable dialogue. Although with the case of Molly's Game, more than almost anything I think Aaron Sorkin has written in recent memory, it feels like 
Aaron Sorkin really wants the audience to know how smart and well-read he is. There's a lot of references to literature, there's a lot of references to theatre and movies, and they like almost every scene starts with so-and-so famous person once said, and then they say something that's relevant to the situation. And as opposed to it feeling like a profound influence or like adding extra meaning and, and anything like that to the actual scene itself, it feels like Aaron Sorkin is basically saying, look how much I've read, aren't you impressed? And in a way, it kind of gets grating, especially since the film is two and a half hours long. Although, to be fair, I didn't feel its length. Molly's Game felt shorter than The Papers, even though it was about 40 to 50 minutes longer than The Papers, which is quite surprising. So, oh no, not 40, my math is wrong. It's about 20 to 30 minutes longer than The Papers. My math is wrong here. Uh, Even, yeah, so The Papers felt longer, even though it was half an hour shorter, roughly. Well, it's still a interesting story. The, the film does a good job at explaining the intricacies of the game, and when there's something important about to happen relating to the poker game and how it relates to some of the characters, the film does a good job at laying out the stakes, laying out what is happening on that poker table in, in rather unique and clever ways, which I, as an audience member who does not really play uh, much many card games, it was something that I did appreciate. The cast is okay, although it feels like with the exception of Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba, the actors were basically just told to do whatever they wanted and they weren't really given much direction. There's quite a few char- there's quite a few actors who kind of come across as blank slates as opposed to actual characters. They become more vessels for Aaron Sorkin's dialogue, whereas Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba, who get predominantly most of the screen time, actually get to... Uh, like embody real characters and personalities and they it feels like Aaron Sorkin gave them a lot of attention on set as opposed to the rest of the cast which is especially true for let's say Kevin Costner who plays Molly Bloom's dad and one thing I kind of took umbrage with over the course of the film is that Jessica Chastain as Molly Bloom is portrayed as this really powerful female figure how she kind of grew up with a hatred of men and she likes having power over men in, in some sort of subliminal way and then all of a sudden uh, Kevin Costner, who plays Molly Bloom's father, who is also a psychiatrist, basically just comes out of nowhere and mansplains the plot to her, who mansplains her her motivations and her character growth and her character arc, and it just felt really out of place, and once again, another excuse for Aaron Sorkin to uh, spout dialogue and spout how clever he is, as opposed to really portraying and depicting characters on screen. I would like to see what Aaron Sorkin does next. I would like to see... Uh, maybe even read the book, which is uh, the the true story. The the memoir is called Molly's Game, the true story of the 26-year-old woman behind the most exclusive high-stakes underground poker game in the world, which is a very long title, but it's, it's maybe a book I, I wouldn't mind reading. I would like to see what Aaron Sorkin does next. I hope he does get behind the camera at some point in the near future. I would just like to see him maybe grow as a director over the course of the next few years. But this is still a, an impressive debut, I like the performances are really great. Uh, the dialogue, despite it trying to impress the audience way too much, is still really charming. One of my favorite moments is early on in the film. They mention the, the play The Crucible, and Molly's like, "I've not read it." And Idris Elba's like, "It's one of the. It's considered one of the best plays of the 20th century." And then near the end of the film, Molly quotes The Crucible. And then Idris Elba just looks at her and says, you finally read The Crucible? She's like, yeah, I did. It's really great, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Like, that's just a really fun human moment. And just a really great bit of dialogue. I just wish that the film maybe had a bit more to it and it had more attention to detail for its supporting cast uh, and just the general emotions of the characters. But I still liked Molly's game. It was a good time. 
and the last film that I'd never seen before, before my flight, was Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. This film got, like, the smallest possible release in the UK, so I was really surprised to see it on my film selection. It's directed and written by Angela Robinson, and it tells the true story of the creation of the Wonder Woman comic book character, who, of course, had hurt. Why do I keep saying, of course? Like, I've, I've, I've clocked this during this podcast. In my introductory, like, paragraph and sentence of every review I've done, I've said, of course. I apologise, folks. <laughs> I'm tired. So... It follows the true story of the creation of Wonder Woman by the psychologist William Moulton Marston, who was a university professor who also, along with his wife, invented the lie detector. You've got William Marston and his wife, Elizabeth Marston, and what happens is that they are teaching at this university, and they bring in Olive Byrne, played by Bella Heathcote, to help them out, like, behind the scenes, to help them out with their, with their research. And what happens is that the three start to develop, to develop a romantic, polyamorous, consensual relationship with each other. And it's all about the prejudices of the 1940s and the 1950s with uh, what is, even by today's standards in a way, kind of cons- cons- um, kind of depicting an, an unconventional love story. Because as depressing as this is, you do often see the word polyamory appear in the same sentences like bestiality or paedophilia, which is absolutely depressing because there's nothing wrong with consensual adults having multiple like consensual partners as long as it is, of course, consensual. Uh, but you've got Luke Evans as, Mar- as uh, William Marsden, you've got Rebecca Hall as Elizabeth Marsden, and Bella Heathcote as Olive Byrne. And the film chronicles their relationship over the course of about like fifteen to twenty years, and they have children together. They they live with each other, but they've got to maintain a lie. They uh, essentially have a secret identity for themselves, and they talk. And it's about them putting their political ideals and their political beliefs into the Wonder Woman comic, and how that draws the the ire of the Child Study Association of America. The film is is framed and formatted with William Marston uh, giving a testimony to the Child Study Association of America because they think, oh, Wonder Woman, it's all about bondage and lesbianism and these indecent things, and we want to ban it. And like this is this is really really topical, but um, about how you have this media with like LGBT subject matter and like women in prominence and in prominent powerful positions, and you have this sort of niche who are really trying to to slam it down and get rid of it. Which once again, very much like the uh, the post is uh, is kind of a um, it feels like this is a very relevant movie and a very relevant story to tell right now, and. What happens over the course of the film is because this really engaging and interesting relationship and and the, the the personal and professional consequences that come from what is essentially when you think about it kind of a really natural relationship that everyone like the three are really happy with and what they it's what they want to do but society kind of shuns them and shuts them down so they think okay what we'll do is that we'll make a comic book we'll we'll use these inspirations from greek mythology with wonder woman and we will include bondage we will include all these subliminal themes as propaganda and i don't necessarily mean the word propaganda in a derogatory sense william marston in this film actually uses the word propaganda in terms of getting across his own ideology within the pages of the Wonder Woman comic book. And 
there's some terrific sequences. Like the poster of the film has uh, Bella Heathcote with in this corset and with these, the, and she's holding the rope and the text says "Ever Wondering." She's got the tiara on, and that scene itself is so beautifully filmed and it's so respectfully restrained as well. And it's all about the power that like comes from a sub and dom relationship. And there's also full on sex scenes in this film, which was interesting because I was on a plane watching this and there were people around me and a really annoying person in the seat in front of me who leaned way back and even though she was like five foot tall and there was no need for her to do that and she was very rude but anyway just watching this film and there's like full-on sex scenes and oh blimey but the the, yeah the scene that is the poster which is when they they kind of like get the visual um the visual representation and the inspiration for diana prince and wonder woman is a beautiful sequence. It's really incredibly well performed by Rebecca Hall and Bella Heathcote. Who, I, the entire cast is superb. Like the, the the main three, the trio, are absolutely outstanding in this film. They give great performances, and yeah, it's it's a really great personal story about desire, about um, what it means to have real control over another person in, in a relationship in a, both a platonic and in a sexual way. It's a really great character study about relationships and romance and love and prejudice and yeah i really really enjoyed professor marston and the wonder woman it was a really smart piece of like drama and romance and it's it's probably not for everyone because of course it does like deal with polyamory and bdsm and stuff like that so if you if you are like more like liberal like liberal in terms of what you what you think people should be able to do or what they do in the confines of their bedroom and in their sex life or whatever then if you are more prudish to that or more opposed to that then you might not enjoy professor marston and the wonder woman but for everyone else and also people who uh are maybe are, are kind of interested in how real life inspirations that kind of define and create the inspiration for some of the most iconic fictional characters of all time like wonder woman professor marston the wonder woman is a fascinating film and i think it also says a lot about like i know people like like to say keep your politics out of my films and i just like want entertainment but that entertainment it has to come from somewhere it has to come from real life inspirations from real life messages from like true life experiences and what what the author or in this case for wonder woman the authors they go through in their own day-to-day life and what their reality and what their normal is this stuff comes from somewhere and professor marston and the wonder woman depicts that really well and i really do highly recommend it and the final film that I saw is Paddington 2. I had already seen Paddington 2. I saw it in theatres. I really liked it. I think it's about on par, as like just as good as the first film. Maybe not as good, because Paddington 2, in many ways, is identical to the first film in terms of its structure and even like the motivation and like, the twist concerning the villain. But I I really enjoyed it, and the reason I watched Paddington Two instead of like a new film there was there were quite a few new films that I still hadn't seen on the flight, like All the Money in the World and a few other films. I watched this one because on the flight I really wanted to sleep, and I thought, okay, I I, I sleep better with background noise. I sleep better listening to something, whether it's a, it's music or a podcast or a YouTube video or something. So I'll put Paddington Two on a film that I've already seen that I don't mind not watching and just fall asleep to it. I've watched all of Paddington Two again because I just enjoyed it that friggin' much. And what really stood out to me on a second viewing was just how funny Hugh Bonneville is. Because he's, he's essentially the straight man in these films. Like, he's he's surrounded by this eccentric family and this eccentric bear. 
and he seems to be the only person in like he views himself as the only one in this family speaking sense and he's so funny in this film like when like when the um, they, they they break into uh Hugh Grant's house and he's and Hugh Grant's like what are you doing in my house and Hugh Grant and Hugh Bonneville is there in his dressing gown he like he emerges from behind the sofa and he just pauses for a moment and then says I could ask you the same question. Uh, that line really hit me hard. That was so funny. His delivery is impeccable, and he's like great in dramatic like TV roles. But he also excels in comedy. He's really great, and uh, of course Brendan Gleeson, the way he says "marmalade" and his whole character Knuckles, like uh, that's really funny. I'm not going to elaborate too much on Paddington Two because I've already seen it, and most people, I, I would rather talk about films that I've like never watched for the first time. Like, but it. Paddington 2 was really fun, really sweet and endearing, and there's a thing, I, I might have to Google it, um, but I listen to, um, I listen to Kermode and Mayo film reviews on, like, BBC Radio 5, and there was, um, Altitude Adjusted Lacrimosity Syndrome, A-A-L-S, and uh, uh, basically due to science or the air pressure or whatever, when you're in a plane watching a film, you are more susceptible to the emotions, meaning you are more likely to cry while watching a movie on a plane than you are uh, watching it on ground level. And while I didn't cry at Paddington 2, the ending did cause me to well up, even though I already knew what happened, I'd already seen the film before, but that ending is so beautiful and so sweet, and I, I really want to see a Paddington 3. I, I believe the film made quite a bit of money, so I, I really hope that the that we get a third one and that Paul King returns to director because he really does seem to have the magic touch here. So yeah, Paddington 2, really good, really enjoyed it. Okay, folks, it is now time for the lightning round where I go to Facebook and ask for questions and I answer them in 60 seconds or less. So without further ado, 3, 2, 1, go. Dean Jones uh, asks, most anticipated movie for the rest of the year. I'm really looking forward to Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, I'm not hyped for Mission Impossible Fallout, although that last trailer was really, really good. Uh, really good trailer. I am looking forward to it. But I would say it's probably The Incredibles 2. Or something else. Yeah, probably Incredibles 2. I'm really looking forward to that because Pixar, I think the material is great and there's a lot to be said about superhero movies. I like the fact that Elastigirl is getting a more prominent role. Uh, the idea of um, the movie being a, like a story about Mr. Incredible trying to become a parent, trying to become a good dad at home. I think there's boundless possibilities for comedy there. I'm really looking forward to... Yeah, I'd say it's Incredibles too. Although, of course, there's going to be loads of like Oscar-related films towards the end of the year. That should be good. There's that um, Melissa McCarthy, uh, Could You Ever Forgive Me? Which looks really good as well. So I'm going to go for Incredibles 2 and Could You Ever Forgive Me? Okay, next question. Three, two, one, go. John uh, John Bridgewater asks, blood type. Uh, I'm blood type O. I am the boring common type, but I, I know that because I donate blood. Okay, next question. Three, two, one, go. Nathan Snyder asks, thoughts on the current season of My Hero Academia? Uh, season three is the first season I've had to watch week to week when it comes out, uh, as opposed to series one and two, which were already out when I started watching and I was able to binge watch them. And as a result, I think series three has a much slower pace. In terms of just the pacing... And the the story content, 3 is not as good as 1 and 2 in my opinion. I'm still really enjoying it. I'm still really uh, anticipating it, watching it every Sunday. But uh, in terms of the actual content, because every episode of series 1 and 2 feels like you, you could watch one episode and even though it's part of a bigger, grander story, each episode feels really, really fulfilling. I'd say every three or four episodes of this current series feel really fulfilling. 
It's something I probably would much prefer to binge as opposed to watch week to week. Whereas the, there's only really been one truly great satisfying episode, and that was episode four. That was Midoriya versus Muscular, which just has the like the outstanding ending. But the rest of it, I feel like I m- would much rather be binging it, but I'm still enjoying it. Okay, next question. Three to one go. Paul Stannis asks, favorite hero versus villain one-on-one fight in the MCU? Okay, because you said hero versus villain one-on-one fights, that basically just counts almost everything in Civil War. So no airport fights, no Tony versus Steve. Um, Okay, one-on-one. I think the Hulk versus Abomination is really underrated. That's a really great fight. The music's outstanding. I I like the CGI in it. The choreography's really good. And how the Hulk rips apart the taxi and uses it as boxing gloves like in the Hulk Ultimate Destruction video game. But in terms of other MCU one-on-one fights, Ant-Man versus Yellow Jacket in, in his daughter's room is really fun, especially with Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, one-on-one fights. So that, yeah, nothing from Infinity War either, because those are all basically group fights. Um, also, I don't know if it counts, but the Doctor Strange fight in the, um, like in the main Sanctum Santorum, when he's kind of learning his powers and he gets the, the, the Cloak of Levitation for the first time, that's really good. But I think one-on-one fight, probably Hulk versus Abomination. Okay, next question. Three, two, one, go. Dominic Miller says, can you recommend any non-TV Doctor Who stories? Non-TV? Um, I enjoyed Dreamland, the which is like the animate, the CG animated one where Doc, the Doctor goes to Area 51. It's a David Tennant story and it's meant to take place between End of Time... No, it's, yeah, it's meant to take place between uh, The Next Doctor and The End of Time Part 1. It, it's sort of like during that time when he's travelling on his own and he's going to regenerate soon. It's sort of in, in that sort of grey area. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was pretty fun. You can get it on DVD for like two or three quid, or you can probably watch it free online somewhere. Not that I condone that. Uh, also, uh, non-TV Doctor Who stories. There's um, the Five-ish Doctors reboot, which probably doesn't count, but that's really fun as well. Uh, as for Big Finish, I'm kind of trying to make my way through the first few stories. And uh, yeah, of course, like, you know, Spare Parts and Jubilee, that's sort of the great very first go-to ones for Big Finish. So uh, hopefully I've given you a bit of a starting point. Next question, three, two, one, go. Ben Frost asks, have you ever seen Luther? And if so, what did you think? I absolutely love the series and it's written by the same guy who did The Rings of Akaten. Yeah, Neil Cross, he is the showrunner for Luther. I've watched, a, I think I've watched the whole of series one, but I don't really remember much of it, but it was years ago and I think it was mostly background noise where I did other things. I, I would like to watch it. I love um, Idris Elba and almost anything he does, so it's something that I'm going to try and revisit at some point. I'd also like Neil Cross to come back and write for Doctor Who again, but yeah, I, I have watched series one, but it's something I, I really wasn't giving my full attention and will need to revisit. Next question, 321 Go. Richard McGee says, What are your thoughts and memories of tw- of 2001 A Space Odyssey now that it has celebrated its 50th anniversary this year? I hate to be that hipster guy, I think it's overrated. Technically, it's outstanding. The like the cinematography and the practical effects and everything. It's outstanding, terrific, ahead of its time. How 9000 is an outstanding character and villain. The rest of the film, I can take or leave. It's way too slow-paced for its own good. It, I, there's a difference between methodical and outright glacial, and 2001 A Space Odyssey, in my, in my opinion, is really, really glacial. There is very little in terms of actual meaning or subtext or anything, in my opinion, outside of the How 9000 character. So, you kind of... I forget how long the film is. It feels like an eternity, but it feels like you you are really investing in a lot of time for very little gratification in terms of themes or subtext or anything in terms of character outside of How 9000. So it's okay. I just it's it's not for me. 
Next question, three to one go. David Anthony Gilmer asks, favorite legendary Pokemon? Um, I want to say Entei, but that could be because of my bias of loving uh, Pokemon, like the third Pokemon movie. Um, in terms of favorite, okay, I have a memory of catching Lugia. I was, um, I had a Game Boy with Pokemon Silver, and I was flying somewhere. I can't remember where I was flying. It was going on a family holiday, and I was in an airport. And we were waiting to board our flight. And I was on my Game Boy. And I was trying to catch Lugia. I didn't want to use my Master Ball. I wanted to save that for later. And I was throwing Great Ball after Great Ball. Trying to whittle it down and paralyze it and all this stuff. And I remember catching Lugia in that room. In the in the check like in their waiting area. And shouting, yes! Uh, it, like, <laughs> as loud as I could. And everyone just stops and stares at me. And I'm just like, hello! I caught Lugia. Um, so, <laughs> either Lugia or Entei. So, there's probably one of those two. Uh, next question, three to one go. Uh, Alex Rooney asks, have you seen the Bohemian Rhapsody trailer? If so, what did you think of it? I like the trailer. I couldn't really quote or name anything specific about it, because I, I don't have it on hand, and I uh, haven't watched it since it first came out. But, it looks good. Um, I'm hoping the production comes through in the end, because, of course, Brian Singer... Uh, left the well, he was kicked off the production after running a really, really bad set. And Dexter Fletcher, who directed Eddie the Eagle, is taking it over. So I, I think he, uh, I've heard nothing but great things about him in the industry with people who have worked with him. Apparently, he's really great and really kind. So I really wish him great success, and I hope the film does well. I hope that the film uses great use of the licensed soundtrack. Uh, so it's got some of the best music in history. So it better do. But yeah, I, I hope it comes out well, and I liked the trailer. Uh, next question, three to one go. Tom Brilly Smith asks, "What are your hopes and th- fears for the upcoming Solo or Star Wars story?" My hopes are we just get a fun, rollicking, good space opera. My fears are that Alden Ehrenreich uh, will not be very good. He may be the weakest part of the film, and of course, the inevitable backlash because oh, Last Jedi was terrible and Han Solo was terrible. So those the and I guess like th- that discourse. Like the whole the whole discussion surrounding the Last Jedi was just terrible to be a part of. Like I loved the Last Jedi, but just going around online and seeing people in my like there was yes there are legitimate criticisms which I also acknowledge and accept and will criticize the film for. But some of the discourse around that film was so dour and so stupid and so poorly thought out and so mean spirited. I hope that doesn't happen again for Solo a Star Wars story. I, I really hope that the online discourse is actually you know, interesting and fun and good to engage with. Uh, next question, three to one go. Uh, Harvey D. Cotton Jr. says, why does Hollywood still use the Wilhelm scream? Because it's kind of a tradition. It's it, it's weird. For those of you, for some reason, who don't know, the Wilhelm scream was a movie from, it was a, a character in a like Western movie in the 50s called Wilhelm. He's shot by an arrow by a Native American and he does a scream. And now, for some reason, that scream is used in many films. It's used in Deadpool 2 most recently. It's used in almost every Star Wars film. It's used in Indiana Jones. Basically, anything with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas is likely to be used. I think it was used in Ready Player One at some point. And it's oddly an iconic scream. Um, Hollywood still like to use it because it's just a fun thing to use. It like it's also just a fun moment. So like if you're an audience member, you'll be like, ah, I know that scream. That's a that's a funny scream. The scream itself is kind of a joke unto itself. It's a weird meta joke. So I there's no one reason Hollywood likes to use the Wilhelm scream. It's just a weird tradition. 
a tradition that some people can either engage with or ignore. Either way, the film is no better or worse without it. Next question, 3 to 1 go. Jonathan Mullen asks, if you could renew one original Avengers MCU contract, who would it be? Um, probably Chris Evans. Like Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark and Chris Hemsworth is great as Thor. But there's something about the way Chris Evans has embodied Captain America. How he's even like on on like outside of this of the films, just how he is in public and how he is online and how he is uh, like tr- talking to people. He is he just seems like an absolute class act. So I, I I would love to renew his contract, but in a way I'd feel bad because he clearly wants to maybe do his own things and direct his own projects. So I hope that he doesn't die. Because Chris Evans as Captain America is terrific, but if he passed the mantle on to somebody else, that would that would also be that would also work. But with like t- Tony Stark, I think if he were to die, then that would be a fitting end. But Captain America needs to live on. Like, have you seen America right now? We need Steve Rogers. Uh, next question: Three to one go. Edward Sweet asks: Favorite classic monster movie, fifties, nineteen fifties or before? There's a lot to choose from, but one of my, I I don't know if it's my definitive favorite, but one of my favorites is the Mummy, the original Boris Karloff Mummy. That like that opening scene, like the opening five or ten minutes where the the archaeologists uh, like they've just dug up the sarcophagus and it's just like stood up upright in the background and they talk about their find, and one of them leaves the room and you just see in the background the the cover come open. It's just terrific in terms of tension building. To this day, it's still pretty creepy and scary. It holds up well, really well. Whereas a few other ones like Dracula and Frankenstein, they hold up well as well, but there's still quite a few dated elements. The Mummy does not feel quite as dated. It's it's creepy. It's scary. It's it's got quite a bit on its mind as well, and I I really enjoy it. So it's probably not my favourite, like definitive, but in the confines of a sixty second answer, it's all I can think of right now. Next question: three to one go. Mitchell Radford asks, "How would you open Avengers four? Um, tough question. Um, what I would do, like regard, like ignoring everything that will happen afterwards and in the second and in the third act, or whatever direction the film wants to go back into i would open by establishing who is still alive in this universe and having them just talk about it because like black panther's gone like steve saw bucky like disintegrate in front of him oh spoiler warning by the way <laughs> i'm sorry um yeah spoiler warning but yeah um i like he saw like, the, like half of the cast are decimated like you need to establish what the new normal is in the world and how the characters think about it. Because we all love the action and the spectacle. But what is really bringing us like, back into the theatre day in day out for the MCU. Is the characters and our attachment to them. And that needs to be front of centre, front and centre. And also in the opening of Avengers 4. Next question. 3 to 1 go. Diego Lacamara says. Uh, what do you think of how Doug and Rob Walker are handling the change to the channel controversy post our response? Uh, how do I think Doug and Rob Walker are handling the change the channel controversy? They're not handling it at all. They've kind of done what, in a business term, in a business way, is kind of the smart thing, and they've ignored it completely. They've not ignored after their like initial two responses. They've just not mentioned it. They've been creating new content daily on their YouTube channel. I'm not subscribed to their YouTube channel, by the way. After what, after everything that came out, I just I know I, I was I was kind of growing out of it anyway. But that kind of that sort of sealed the deal for me. So they're just not doing anything about it, which in a way is smart, but it's not necessarily right. 
So I hope that they will apologize or get rid of Mike McCarter or whatever it takes to maybe on and maybe in a few months time try and rebuild the the channel awesome brand because that website is now just a, a ghost town there's like two more contributors and the forums are down so it's only their youtube channel hopefully hopefully they can rebuild but they've they've got to acknowledge it and apologize and make amends next question three to one go marco potoando says did you see happy death day if you did what are your thoughts and what do you think of the sequel coming out in 2019 yeah I, yeah when it came out on dvd me and my partner watched it and we both really enjoyed it um yeah, it was it was a fun time. Um, I didn't like how, in a way, it sort of it broke its own rules because uh, after a few times when the main character has died and comes back to life, Groundhog Day style, she realizes that she is carrying over some of the injuries of how she died last time, so she she can't do this forever. It's a really smart way to give the film a ticking clock, but then afterwards the film just completely ignores that. That really annoyed me. But the film had like I liked the scene with with um, the main girl and her father when they finally meet up. That was actually really touching, and I don't know if it needs a sequel. If the film stand on stands on its own quite well, but I I will see it if it looks good. But yeah, I I did enjoy Happy Death Day. Uh, next question. Uh, there's actually a question that I I know I saw ahead of time. I'll give it longer than a minute because it's a really interesting question and I want to dedicate more time to it. So I'll get to that one last. So. Uh, next question, three to one, go. Connor James O'Donnell says, if Disney is successful in requiring Fox, then uh, what Marvel property would you like to see them bring to the MCU first, X-Men or Fantastic Four? That would depend on how Dark Phoenix does. If Dark Phoenix is great and good and is a really good, solid, great send-off for the X-Men, if this deal does go through, then I'd like to see the Fantastic Four brought back. They could do it Spider-Man style, where they incorporate them into a bigger uh, like uh, ensemble film and then branch out into their own solo films because that's what they did for spider-man because he'd been in so many films in the past few years that it made sense to acclimatize audiences to this new version in a different film and then set him off in his own little, little adventure so that's probably the best for fantastic four especially since we haven't got like a good fantastic four movie yet whereas the x-men with like deadpool and logan they are doing their own really cool thing and I would rather see the Fantastic Four join the MCU than the X-Men. So if the X-Men can continue doing their own thing, uh, but the Fantastic Four join the MCU, I'd be happy with that outcome personally. Next question, 3 to one go. Seb PT asks, would you like to see a version of the new Planet of the Apes films without the CGI? It's kind of hard to go back. Like, if you look at the Tim Burton film, those masks and those costumes were good at the time, but don't stand up to the motion capture work done by Weta and Andy Serkis. I think that's the way to go, in my opinion. The, it was done incredibly well. The technology uh, has really been improving over the past few years, and Andy Serkis really deserved some sort of accolade or some sort of acknowledgement for his performance as Caesar. Uh, and I, either they genuinely train the monkeys to act, or they continue with that approach. I think that's the way to go. I think the CGI, it's... The technology is there, it's better and, and more emotive than doing it practically in a way for, for those type of characters. So I, I say uh, I, I would like to see it done with CGI again, I, I, That, in my opinion. Okay, next question. Ooh, my voice is giving out, give me a second. Let me just take a swig of hotel tea. Okay, nearly there. Next question, three, two, one, go. Um... Taylor Zoso Christiana says, what are your thoughts on the Channel Awesome slash Jew Wario debacle? Yeah, so I've given my thoughts on the Channel Awesome thing. I think they need to make amends. They need to apologize. But for the Jew Wario thing, Justin Carmichael, uh, otherwise known as Jew Wario, he committed suicide a few years ago. He was suffering from depression. He had a lot of personal demons, but then a lot came out 
Uh, Channel Awesome, in one of their terrible responses, accidentally outed Jew Wario. Um, it, like, in order to try and save their own skin and cover them, their own neck, they actually further incriminated themselves and one of the former contributors, Juario, who uh, sexually assaulted some contributors at a convention, at, at a convention um, and knew about it for quite a while before letting him go. Um, so, yeah, that whole thing uh, kind of tarnishes Juario's legacy and um, like everything that those contributors contributors did to like support him and help him and after like all their well wishes after his like after his suicide it's a complex situation i'm not invested in it um so i can't really speak on behalf of the people of channel awesome or his representatives or anything like that it's just it's just a shambles really that's the best way to describe it and the final question the one that i want to give a bit more minute to so more than a minute to so i'll turn off my timer uh, comes from Harry Walker, who asks, Do you have any thoughts on representation of, of Asperger's Syndrome slash autism in TV and film? I'm currently writing an essay on it and would be interested to hear your thoughts. And one reason um, I'm, I'm giving more than a minute to this is because a few people have commented saying that they wanted to ask about the question, never have had the confidence to do so, that it's an important topic to cover. Um, so I'm going to um, try and answer it in my own way. This is coming from someone who um, is not autistic, but who has worked with people on the autistic spectrum, uh, who knows people who are autistic, and is also somebody who works in the media and hopes to be more creative in the media in the near future. So I can that that's the perspective this is coming from. This is not coming from a specialist or someone with uh, deep personal experience or deep personal ties to the subject matter. So this is how I interpret it but it may vary for many other people. In terms of representing people on on the spectrum in TV and film, it's kind of tough because um if like you have to kind of outright say in some like forms of medium that they they do have Asperger's syndrome or they are autistic. Um otherwise like if you just lay it out there like if, if you don't say anything and i'm gonna ramble because this is like the midnight ramblings of someone who's very tired because he's been working all day in his hotel room so i apologize if i say stupid things um but if if you don't portray it correctly if you don't portray it sensitively enough then you could just be um the audiences may misinterpret the character as just being a really insensitive character who they do not like as opposed to somebody who is maybe trying to be social or somebody who uh, really is unable to um, to read social situations. So it's a tough line to walk because it's not just about depicting a character on TV or film or in comics or in books or whatever. It's about being able to portray that character and to make audiences understand or sympathize with either the character themselves or the or the people around the character. Which is why I think the A word uh, with the BBC drama starring Christopher Eccleston is uh, a pretty good litmus test for that. You have this kid at the centre of the narrative on the autistic spectrum, and it's about the family coping with that. And it's not just about, it's not like, oh, the kid's got autism, what do we do? And we get two seasons worth of content out of that. The family have their own dramas and their own struggles, and sometimes they just happen to overlap with this kid. And I think that's a good way to play it. I think if there's one thing to be said about representation of people with autism in TV and film, or in film in particular, is that the film is either strictly about the character having autism and the way they see the world, like Rain Man or Forrest Gump, for example, or it's about, or, or the character with autism is strictly a supporting character who does not necessarily grow and change that much over the course of the film, like the Blue Ranger in the recent Saban's Power Rangers movie, 
or Holtzman in the Ghostbusters film, and Holtzman was like my favorite character, and Kate McKinnon absolutely kills it. But I understand that that's like a, div- a divisive topic and a divisive movie. Um, but for um, you, you very rarely see a character as the actual lead who also happens to be autistic, and that is not the thrust of the story. I think in terms of representation, that is when it truly happens, when you have a character who just so happens to have this certain attribute, or I've, what's the series called? It's the um, it's, It stars Holiday Granger, it's a BBC crime thing, and the main detective character has a prosthetic leg. And you know, you think, what's that got to do with autism? But it's it's still like a representation of a, of a of a demographic that is not often portrayed in TV and film, and it's not the center of the story. They just happen to have a prosthetic leg, and sometimes it helps them, sometimes it holds them back. It's something that is frequently acknowledged, but it's not. Oh, I'm a one-legged detective, and this is my adventures. It's oh, I'm a detective. Oh, and I happen to have a prosthetic leg. Like that's the sort of way representation ideally in a completely ideal world should be portrayed uh, but i think if you like if you have like a character who is maybe autistic then you, you may end up like having a sherlock holmes from the tv series sherlock character where he's this insensitive sociopath and he's and he's kind of like his his outlook on life is portrayed as a net negative thing whereas autism is not necessarily that and autism is a difficult thing to cover because it is on a spectrum it, you have people who have mild autistic tendencies and some people who it, it is basically um a, a daily challenge or it, it is a daily constant facet of their life so it's difficult to portray something that is on a spectrum like that but i think it can be done because media is vast media is all consuming there's thousands of thousands of hours being pumped out every single day of, of like entertainment on hundreds and thousands of channels and all all like all corners of the world I don't think it's too unreasonable to ask that maybe one of those TV shows has an autistic character at the front and it's not necessarily about their autism. Um, I don't necessarily have a personal stake in this fight, but as someone who really wants to try and champion media and champion um, like the power of storytelling, I understand that it can be important to see yourself or see, uh, an out- or see something that you don't necessarily personally relate to seen on screen. It helps you become a better person. It helps to educate and inform and I think it needs to be done. Um, so th- these are just the ramblings. It's why I couldn't really limit myself to a minute. But hopefully I've given you some material to work with. Um, I, I Yeah, hopefully. Think, fingers crossed. Or maybe I've just rambled on. But that is the whole point of the podcast. So thank you so much for listening to me ramble on the Film Brits podcast. Uh, be sure to check me out as well. Ramble on the Movie Mania podcast. Be sure uh, you can subscribe to Bandit Incorporated's YouTube channel. And we do a live stream every week. I wasn't there last week because I was in Canada. But I'll try and be there again this week. I think we're talking about Deadpool 2. Uh, you, can also, you can also follow me on Twitter at Trooper Reviews. If you're listening to this on iTunes, please leave a review and rate. And I'd massively appreciate that. And... Uh, also be sure to help to um, support the podcast on patreon i massively appreciate that and i'll see you folks next time